So hi everybody, good to see you all again. I know a few people said that they couldn't come to tonight, so we'll have a small group tonight. So, so uh, normally what we do, is, for those of you, ha- is one or two people who haven't been here before. So normally what we do is we start with a sitting uh, and then uh, engage in some discussion and usually I sort of say something to set the focus for the evening and then we try and do some kind of exercise or discussion. So, um, but before we do that, before we do all that, I just want to uh, talk about a couple of things. Um, uh, several people in the group have approached me at different times looking for avenues for service, places to serve, or kinds of service. And um, So I, I thought I'd mention a couple of them, particular to um, work with people at the end of life, because I know a number of people have interest in that. This might need a little more volume, don't you think? Or is it just... Okay. Thank you, Kitty. Um, So there's a couple of programs that I would suggest or recommend. The first of those is here in San Francisco, the Zen Hospice Project. It's one of the better volunteer programs in the country, actually, but it happens to be right here in San Francisco. And so um, they do trainings generally twice a year, sometimes once a year. And most of their volunteers are working right now at Laguna Honda Hospital, where there's a palliative care hospice unit there. It's a very good program. And Jennifer over here, in the curly hair, works at Zen Hospice. So if you want to know about Zen Hospice, you can go and ask her. So that's, that's one project. Uh, another project that one of my students, uh, graduates of our program, is he's the head of spiritual care at Kaiser Hospital. And he's just starting a new spiritual care volunteer program, which is going to use some of the work from our training um, at Kaiser, which is gr- I'm excited to hear about. And there's a couple of flyers, so if you want one, take one. If not, just pass them along. Kaiser here in San Francisco. So um, that's another good possibility. Uh, another possibility that I've mentioned to a few people here in San Francisco is Coming Home Hospice. Coming Home Hospice is um, owned by California Pacific Medical Center. It was the first AIDS hospice in San Francisco. Um, it's in Castro, block or two off Castro on Diamond Street. It's a wonderful little place. And that's another spot that I might suggest if you're looking to do that kind of work. Um, and lastly, um, the Shanti Project, which has been around forever, uh, is another program that I often recommend here in the Bay Area. There are countless other programs, and I'm not leaving them out because they're not any good. It's just it would take all night to list them. But um, So those are all programs related to end-of-life kinds of issues, and I might suggest suggest you look them up if you're interested in that. Um, I'm hoping that tonight we'll also have just a little bit of discussion about um, the application of what we've been talking about in other realms of service, obviously, uh, because this program isn't particular to end-of-life care, but I thought I'd mention that because a lot of people have asked me about it, so those are some good suggestions. Um, I think, I can't remember, actually, but last time we were here, did I give you there were some flyers I think I brought, I can't remember, on a program that I'm doing in April. Yes, it's a one-day training. Okay, so if you didn't hear about that and you want to know about that, we'll, there'll be some flyers here. In fact, here. Pass those around, and people who want them can. And that's a one-day training on compassionate care of the dying, specific to end-of-life care. So you're welcome to uh, come to that and tell your friends about that. So those are the announcement things. Now, I have... In terms of the evening's program, I, I have two, two ways in which I want to 
I could easily go. But in order to do that, I have to survey you a little bit. So, um, the first is, I know a lot of you have been in programs with me before in which I've talked about these five precepts of service that I developed some years ago. And then when I say that, if you've been in programs with me, you'll know what they are. But if you haven't, um, you won't know what they are. So that's okay. So just give me a sense with your hands. How many of you are familiar with those? Did I, that work? So Chris and Jennifer, obviously. Okay, a few of you have known that. Okay, so not the whole group. Okay. But well, that's good. That helps me. Um, now, before we sit, actually, I'd actually like to change our rhythm because I'd like to hear from some of you about homework. Remember the homework? It was, tell me a way you avoid suffering. That was a repeating question we did and then we were going to look at that during the week and see when did we notice ourselves trying to avoid suffering or how did it come up? Or um, Was it an experience of mind? Was it an experience of body, of heart, all three? What did you notice about So I thought we might just begin with some discussion about that. Uh, and then we'll sit, and then we'll work with this evening's topic. Okay? So, anybody want to just start with this? I'm curious. Did you notice yourself avoiding suffering in any time, person with yourself or with others, during the course of the week? And if so, how? So, I'll stop talking, and you can talk. Hmm? Yeah, please. Uh-huh. Um, my, my Reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that how you understand it? I mean, I know that's the Buddhist. Uh, generally, that's the the general way in which Buddhism tends to describe it. But. So, I mean, I, I could add a few things to this. Um, there's lots of ways to understand this, actually. And that the, what you've sort of described in broadly about the Buddhist perspective is one way to understand it. I mean, I- even within Buddhism, we would... Usually, this word, you know, dukkha, is not only described as suffering, but as unsatisfactoriness, difficult to bear, um, stress, discomfort, many things, right? So when we talk about avoiding it, in other words, is there room for it? it we're going to encounter it because the mind is going to do its thing and, and we're going to have reactions. Well, I, I think you're, you're making a distinction that there might be an assault on the knee and that's a physical experience. And then we have a whole bunch of concerns about it. Will it last forever? Will it ever go away? Um, does this mean I won't be able to run anymore? Those are the added elements to it. It's kind of suffering in the mind. Huh? Um, 
So yeah, we could make that distinction between what is physical pain and what is our relationship or response to the pain. But it isn't always about pain, physical pain. Our suffering isn't always about physical pain. Yeah. Right, right. So the person we love most in the world dies. It hurts. And as much as I might say, well, I know if I add anything to that, that's just suffering. I still do it. At least I do. So, um, what I'm interested in, in looking at is, how, what are the habits I use to create more suffering, to add to the suffering, as perhaps you're suggesting. So the way in which I, I come at that is, well, what are the things I'm trying to do to avoid it? And that's the way in which I compound, you could say, my relationship to suffering. Yeah. Oh, there, that's a great example. Thank you. That's a really good example. I'm uncomfortable here. It must be them. Yeah. Uh huh. How'd that go? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, I'm glad for you. Yeah. So that's partly, I mean, for me, and I said this a bit last week, the growth of compassion emerges. Well, it emerges with wisdom, of course. But where does that wisdom come from? For me, it comes from the contact with the suffering itself. It hurts. And when I compound it, it hurts even more. And when I let myself feel that, then my compassionate heart can emerge. If I don't let myself feel it all, if I just say, those jerks over there, then my compassion doesn't emerge. Because... I'm not really letting myself feel the suffering. So there's a real value to letting ourselves experience the suffering. And suffering has other value for us besides that, but that's one of its values. Yeah. And it's something we don't talk about much. Like what's the value of suffering? You know, there is a value in it. We just mostly want to get rid of it. So we never come to understand that. Uh-huh. For you. <laughs> well, good for you. That's really great. I mean, I remember, yeah, for example, when I really first began sitting meditation a lot, when I would come up into a conflict, I would often close my eyes. And I would close my eyes so I could center myself, you know, because that's what I do in meditation, right? But of course, it completely cut the other person out of the picture, right? And they would say, Look at me! I'm talking, trying to talk to you about this. You know, I say, no, no, I'm just trying to get centered here. You know? and, but actually, it was helpful for a while. And then I realized I didn't have to do that in order to be centered. And, but in the beginning, I did need to do it. And so maybe you do need to take the pause. And that's really skillful to do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we might have to go back and clean up, you know, or explain, as you've suggested, but when we do that in a self-responsible way, then the other person can understand, usually. Yeah. 
Anything else? Anybody else? How did you avoid suffering? How did it go? Did you, were you successful? Did it work? Yeah. Um, one of the things I realized is that I make judgments about situations in order to try to avoid it. Uh-huh. Make it a whole lot worse. Uh-huh. I live in the tenderloin. Uh-huh. It's often very painful yes. walking through the tenderloin. Yes. Literally stepping over people. Yes. Um, and it's about every six months I go through a thing. i got to move. I just can't tolerate this anymore. And I realized this week as I was walking through the tenderloin that part of, part of that is I look at someone who quite apparently is suffering mm-hmm. and I have a judgment that it shouldn't be so. It yeah. should, we should have better government systems. They should have had better parenting. They should have better schools. They should have taken more responsibility. And I have all these judgments about it that it shouldn't be that way. And I noticed that and I just said, well, no, this is how it is. And there was a certain kind of the only way I can describe it is a, a hard-edged compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, a compassion of separate entities, in a sense, mm-hmm. but one that made me feel closer. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was an odd experience, in one sense. Uh, but I, I just realized that judgment and how that made my suffering a whole lot more. Now I don't know what the next step is. Because mm-hmm. to step over them doesn't seem like an acceptable solution. Uh-huh. Well, um, I'm not sure what the, the, the correct solution is to the quandary that you described, but certainly the next step is, oh, I let myself feel this. I let myself feel the judgment. And I let myself feel what hurts about the judgment. That's the first thing. And then the other thing I would say in it is that uh, when I judge myself or others, uh, when my critic is at, you know, in full swing, I have to recognize that part of, part of its energy, and I'm not excusing the critic here, but part of its energy is that it wants to protect. That's the part of what it wants to do. And there's a flavor in there that would be useful to smell. Yeah? There's, a, there's a fragrance in there that would be useful to smell, you know, to taste. That in the, in the desire to protect, there's something that's distorted, it's twisted, you know, it's externalizing the situation, but there's something in there, kind of innate goodness that's in there. Just like when the parent says, don't cross the street or look both ways. It may seem harsh, and it is sometimes, it's not always the most skillful interaction, but it would be useful to see the flavor of fragrance that's in there. In addition to the, distance, the distancing flavor, there's something else, which is... I, I actually, my heart breaks when I see this. Yeah. And in fact, it, I'm so worried about its breaking, I'm going to step back from it. Yeah? And, and, and so I have to recognize, oh, that really, my heart really hurts. Yeah. And that helps me a lot. There was an experience of um, much greater poignancy in the moment. Uh-huh. And then afterwards, it, I felt like I let it go. I was released from it rather than carrying it. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is, the, the, uh, this has to do with your quandary, is that when I let those couple of steps happen, I let myself feel the suffering, I see in, even in the protection there's some arising of some innate goodness, then it actually can lead me to skillful action. Because there, there are things that need to be done. It's not okay to just keep stepping over people day after day. There are things that need to be done. And so then you start to say, well, how can I be most skillful in this situation? And, you know, maybe being most skillful is making contact. 
maybe more skillful is working with an agency that's going to do something. Uh, you know, maybe it's doing a street retreat and really becoming, uh, letting this really work you over a period of time. You know, the faithful fools do great retreats down there in the Tenderloin. They're a good group. So there could be all kinds of skillful actions that would come out of it, but it will, those skillful actions will never emerge just from the distancing. They'll come from the letting us feel the hurt. Great. What do I mean by street retreat? Oh, um, a friend of mine, Bernie Glassman, who was a wonderful Zen teacher, many years ago initiated an idea called street retreats. And he took Buddhist students out to the streets of New York for a period of days, anywhere from three to seven days. And, um, and he would give them each a dollar. And they would have meeting, they would have to survive on the street, live on the street. They slept in uh, homeless shelters during the night. And they would gather once a day to reflect together about the impact of this retreat. And so the notion was, how do you stay aware when you're living on the street? And how does this build your understanding, sensitivity to others who are living on the street? How can we encourage our compassion? So that idea that Bernie started has been replicated many, many times. And there's a group in San Francisco called the Faithful Fools, which have been doing this for years. Faithful Fools. And they're in the Tenderloin. And they organize street retreats for individuals. They do some wonderful things for young people, where young people can go out into the, on the streets for one day with a shadow, with somebody else, an adult, who has done these street retreats. And they experience life on the street. So extraordinary compassion practice. So, back to our, or more on our subject. Anybody else want to say anything about this attempt? Yes. Yes, because we asked you to look at it in those two. Thank you. That's great that you could be that aware of that. So, I'm curious, did, did that, I have to do it myself, was that the primary, um, oh, kind of modus operandi, both in your personal experiences and in your experiences at work, or did, were they different? Back to you again. See, I have such a different work environment than this, you know. I mean, I was interviewing somebody today for a job, 
they were coming for a job. And I, one of the questions I asked them is, tell me a way you avoid your suffering. And she looked at me like, you mean that? And I said, yeah, I really want to know. So, um, and this is a question to the group, in a way, and it sort of leans us into our, what I was thinking our discussion for tonight would be, which is, I'm really curious about how the effort to avoid our suffering supports self-centeredness. Like what you just described, for example, which was beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, self-centeredness, right, is a notion that this is it and everything else radiates out from here, right? It's a reference point. It's a point of orientation, self-centeredness. I'm here and this is the most important spot in the universe, like those t-shirts, you know? And uh, so I, I'm really curious about this, how the effort to avoid suffering promotes self-centeredness. Right? Protects. Coming back to you, protects the sense of self. Yeah? And this isn't altogether bad, but I, I want to explore this. Because um, uh, what this self-centeredness can degenerate into, we could say, is selfishness. And selfishness we often understand as manipulation of others or, you know, um, uh, yeah, in some way diminishing others through our actions, we could say. But that's a kind of distortion of the self-centeredness. And our subject for this evening is actually really non-separation or selflessness. And selflessness isn't about I have a self and then I ignore it. You know, selflessness is a different point of orientation. Selflessness is an orientation that recognizes, it orients from my own deep nature. And this doesn't have a sense of, uh, it's non-local. It's not about, I'm here and you're over there. And so when service emerges out of this, it's from an entirely different orient- point of orientation. Yeah, please. No. No, I'm making it with this, with, yeah. I, I was talking about her feeling like she had to do it all herself. Well, I, I, might, I might understand it a little differently, but you're the, you're the, you have to be the test of this because it's your experience. Right, so there are times when it would be quite skillful not to necessarily share everything at work because it's not a, it may not be an environment which is conducive to that. So that could be a wise decision. But when I'm working from the vantage point of this is all there is, then I don't see other possibilities. I feel I'm responsible to do it all. Okay. Anything else about this subject before we move on? Yeah, please. Uh-huh. Like, um, like I tend to really try and give it space and take care of myself uh-huh. and I have a yoga practice and uh-huh. um, I take walks in the woods and I journal and I do all these things and I'm wondering if at the same time those are also, they, they might be helpful but at the same time they're 
Uh-huh, very good. That's a really great question. That was the question I was hoping you would get to. Very good. Thank you. So, um, let's first of all distinguish. It's like my example of Haagen-Dazs last week. You know, it's not, Haagen-Dazs is a gift from the gods. We can use it, you know, effectively. You know, mindfulness can be used in the same way. We can be mindful of our experience, then allowing of the experience, contact with the experience, or we can use mindfulness like um, the newest tool we've got in our toolbox. Yeah? So, um, for me it has a lot to do with the contact, the quality of contact. Yeah? Uh, I, I think I shared the story last week of I was with somebody who was having a great cathartic moment about the death of his child. I think I shared the story last week. And, and while I was with him I could also hear the birds. Now, I wasn't going away to the birds so I wouldn't be with him. It was the orientation for my service was coming from a different place. Yeah. So, um, uh, one of the uh, um, the question that we're really trying to get at is the one that is partly the one you asked as a follow-up question, which is: Is there anything that I do that doesn't try and avoid suffering? And I would say. Um, and what would I say? When I'm in the self-centered, oriented place, I would say most of that activity is about avoiding suffering. Most of that. Yeah? Getting comfortable, getting my needs met, you know, getting pleasure, getting, getting, getting. However, <coughs> those experiences can be liberated. For example, the movement toward pleasure, which is thought of in most spiritual traditions as the bad guy, right? I don't see it that way. I think the movement toward pleasure is ultimately a movement toward bliss, which is a facet of our deepest nature. So, but if we keep it only relegated to our sort of animal instinctual drive, and that never gets liberated, then we will stay stuck in the, in the limited frame of, what that, of that instinctual drive. Whereas if we allow ourselves to really notice it, feel it, let pleasure be okay, actually, but not just to reassert my sense of self, then pleasure will lead us to bliss. So I think it depends a lot on the orientation. First of all, where am I coming from? Who's doing this trying to avoid suffering? Yeah? and am I highly identified with that part of myself in that moment or is there some other part of me that's observing and feeling this part of me that really wants to avoid suffering and I have a kind of compassionate or open contact with it yeah. so when I'm walking in the woods I can be saying I don't want to think about that I don't want to think about that that's trying to avoid suffering I can be walking in the woods and saying this is so beautiful here this is really beautiful and it refreshes me to do this. That's not an effort to avoid suffering. That's just opening to what's here. So the orientation, where we're looking from, I think is really important. Yeah. Um, fascinating. For me, I ran it at altitude and I 
I would go back to the therapist and nail her on this. Ask her to name this point exactly where it crosses over. Oh, you can't. Huh? Well, I mean... I mean, you said something about the point don't, don't hang in, to, don't stay in to, to the point where you numb out. Yes. I didn't know exactly what numbing out means. I yeah. mean, numbing out sounds real good to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It sounds like I'll stay there and I'll cook until I'm numbed out. Yeah. Know? Right. 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 And that's, the, that, that's, a lot of, that's one way in which a lot of people act out, as you put it. You know, we just go and find some way to numb the pain as opposed to actually experience the pain. And that's a really big, there's a big difference between opening the pain and trying to do something that's going to get rid of the pain. And that's a really important difference. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's just, it's faster than I know that we can't even run me. So I just said, you know, your thumbs, the way it's breaking, you know, the boards flying up over my head, you know, crash. So this image that you use, like, you know, the cinematic image of... Yeah. 
person pushing their hand on the grill so that they would erase their nerve pain and they would erase, they would double their nerves. Yeah. So, right, so that effort is the effort to try and get, get rid of the experience. Right? If I don't have nerves, I won't have pain. Yeah? So whenever I, my orientation toward the suffering is the effort to get rid of it, Whenever the orientation is to get rid of it, I know I'm going down the wrong track. That's when I've tipped over. Yeah. Whenever I'm get, trying to get rid of it, then I'm down the wrong track. That's so what do I do? Do I just feel it? Yeah. So that's the next. That's the next. Then what do I do? If I'm not, because what I, I, you know, we know how to get rid of pain. We know how to numb out the pain. So the next question is, how can I skillfully tenderly open to this pain, recognizing that I will have a limitation as to how much I will be able to open to. In other words, um, for me this is a really important piece, to recognize that there will be limitations to how much I can open in a given time. It's like that silly example I used a moment ago about I would close my eyes because if I was trying to pay attention to them and pay attention to me, I couldn't do it. And then I got more skillful. So I had to close my eyes and just pay attention to me. And then I got more skillful and I could pay attention to me and pay attention to the other person. So it's like that with our relationship to pain. Pushing, I've never found to be helpful. I've never found that to be helpful. I know that there are some schools of thought that really encourage such things, but I've never found it to be helpful. Sitting in the fire or like yeah, sitting in the fire and being open is one thing. You know that you know in Vietnam there was that famous monk to turn himself on fire, set himself on fire yeah. during the Vietnam War. Well, you know there was a lot of other monks that tried that. Did you know that? No. No, people don't know that. What about two or three? And and days? they got up and ran away because they couldn't sit in the suffering. He could sit in the suffering. Other people tried; they thought it would be a good idea, you know, but they couldn't do it because they didn't have the presence that could welcome this level of suffering. The monk who sat there could. So I think it's really important that we recognize our limits and not be embarrassed by those or ashamed of those. In fact, really honor them. I think that's really, really important. So we could say at some point, this is all I can do today. This is all I can do today. I can greet this one homeless person, but I might not be able to greet ten. So I'm going to try to really meet this one person. But I know if I try and do 10 today, I'm going to get overwhelmed. And then tomorrow I won't be able to meet anybody. Yeah. So for me, this feels, first, the compassion always has to start with myself. And so to open to my pain means I have to be tender with myself. And if I'm reaching a threshold, that's a point where I have to recognize, is my tenderness still here? Or am I now trying to force my way through something? And the moment I feel that edge, then I know I'm trying to get rid of it. I'm no longer being with it. And that's the point where I have to stop. Then it's really skillful to stop, turn away from the experience, refresh myself, and then come back. Yeah? So if it was in the meditation practice and you're watching pain in your knee, getting into struggle with pain in your knee won't ultimately help you no matter how long you sit there. 
So you have to come back to the breath, refresh yourself, become stable again, then you can maybe open to it again. But otherwise you just get in a battle. And eventually what happens is you get hard around the experience. That doesn't help. I really appreciate your honesty about this. It's really good. Thank you. It's a conscious choice. thing that can most destroy meditation practice for me, what I've seen in my life and the lives of others is the single biggest hindrance to meditation practice is idealism as far as I can see is the notion that we're going to do it in some particular way and then it's going to deliver these goods so the same is true about this question so if we start thinking I'm never going to avoid suffering again well, guess what You know, we're going to fail miserably so even in the Buddhist scriptures, you know, there's actually a Buddhist teaching about distraction and the skillfulness of distraction. Did you know that? Yeah. The Buddha talks about 13 ways to deal with pain. And one of them is distraction. So, in other words, it's useful to recognize our limitation and to become refreshed, actually. So sometimes we'll step away to, in order to become stable or refreshed and then to open, it, open up ourselves again. Otherwise, we simply become overwhelmed and we can't be of any use. Then it's two depressed people down a well who can't help each other at all. And the same is true of, this is particularly important in our service work, to recognize where our limitation is and to honor that. And then to go home. It's five o'clock. Maybe it's time to go home. Okay. This is good discussion. Thank you. So, you know, I remember, this is a silly example maybe, but I remember working with a woman who was, had, had explosive diarrhea and threw up in her bed. And I came in the room and I went, oh my God, I was greeted by this. It was really hard to be in the room. And so I said, just a minute. <laughs> and I went outside the room. And I left her. And the explosive diarrhea and the vomit. Because I knew if I didn't go do that and get stable, there would just be more vomit in the bed, mine. So I went and got a mint, you know, got my breath, and said, okay, now I can come back. And for me, that was an example of, a simple example of honoring my limit. If I had pushed through it, it wouldn't have helped either of us. Okay, okay so this evening's topic, I think, we'll see in a minute. The topic was, how do we when we talked about four things the very first night, intention, willingness to be compassionately open for suffering, to suffering rather, the willingness to release ourselves and others from the limitations of roles, and the four tonight was to have a deep and abiding trust that I am more than the separate self I've taken myself to be. That's how I understood it. And that's our kind of thing I'd like to chew on tonight. Um, 
But I think what would help us a lot, before we start trying to talk about that, is to sit for just a little bit. So let's, let's sit for a little bit, and then we'll talk some more. So there's a really beautiful poem. Some of you may know it. I hope you do. Um, by Juan Ramon Jimenez. That speaks beautifully to our subject for tonight. It goes something like this, if I can remember it. I am not I. I am not I. I am this one. Standing beside me, whom I do not see who at times I manage to visit, but other times forget. The one who goes for a walk when I'm indoors. The one who forgives sweetly when I hate. The one who is silent when I speak the one who remains standing when I die. I am not I. I am this one. Beautiful poem, huh? Most of you know that poem. Beautiful. I am not I. I am not I. I am this one whom I do not see, who at times I manage to visit and other times I forget. Juan Ramon Jimenez. The one who goes for a walk when I am inside. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who is silent when I speak. The one who remains standing when I die. I am not I. I am this one. Beautiful poem. 
And, um, you know, it's not a poem of denial, obviously. It's a poem of expansion, one in which the orientation is not simply with my limited sense of self, but with something larger than myself that also includes myself. And for me, this last statement is really important because it isn't a matter of trying to get rid of something like people are busy trying to get rid of the ego structures, for example. Rather, it's a recognition, a shifting of our identification, not just moves us from being identified just with the structure to being identified with our awareness as we were just practicing for a few minutes in the sitting. So the, the uh, resolution of self-centeredness is not getting a self that you get really centered in, but actually recognizing that um, it didn't exist in the first place. And a resting, a really true resting in something like the awareness I was just guiding us to in, in the meditation practice. Now the problem is that most of us think that that's totally unachievable. How many people think it's completely unachievable? You do. Uh, just the two of you, that's all. Yeah, I, I've lived this way for most of my life, believing that it was completely unachievable. I thought it was a really good idea, and it was something I aspired to, but I didn't think I'd really get it in this lifetime, actually. But I don't think that's true, actually. And I think the more I tell myself that story, the more I reinforce my identity. There's a really good um, story about this. The Dalai Lama came to Barrie, Massachusetts, to the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, many years ago. And he was giving a talk, basically on this, on awareness. And a student basically raised her hand and said, I really want to do this, but I'm just not enough to do this. I just don't feel like I'm going to be able to do this. And how can I do this? You're the Dalai Lama. You can do it. I can't do this. And the Dalai Lama gave this incredibly compassionate response, actually. And it was fierce. It was so fierce. He said to her, that's not true. And I thought that was a brilliant response, actually. It was the most compassionate response he could possibly give. He didn't coddle her in any way. He didn't say, oh, poor baby, that's okay, you'll get there. You know? He just said, that's not true. He cut right through that illusion and said, it's not true. And I thought that was a brilliantly compassionate response. The more and more we orient, I'll say, with this awareness, the fewer boundaries there are between us and others. It's like, if I cut my left hand, my right hand immediately goes out and embraces it. It just does. I don't have to think about it so much. But, you know, if you cut your hand, I have to think, oh, should I go over there and hold her hand? Why? So I think as our awareness or our orientation with our awareness, I want to say, uh, develops, we begin to see this other person's hand as ours too. And then quite naturally, we just reach out in the darkness to one another and embrace the other suffering as our suffering, actually. Um, This is both makes the greatest sense to me. It makes such perfect sense to me, actually. It's very, very logical to me. You know? That when I'm not 
particularly identified, oriented toward a sense of, you know, some kind of structure that's been created, then my own natural openness can express itself. So it makes perfect sense to me, and it's a complete mystery to me. I actually don't know how it works. Actually. So I would say both these things are true for me about it. So I thought as a way of introducing us to this um, territory a little bit, I would speak a little bit about mystery as a kind of mm, way of connecting to, to this ungraspable notion of we, I am actually this awareness. I am not I. I am this one. So, in mystery that I'm talking about is mystery with a capital M, right? It's not the Agatha Christie kind of mystery, you know, where you figure it out at the end and you know the butler did it, you know. Um, in this mystery, you usually don't figure it out in the end, actually. Um, and this is a threat to our competency. And when that sense of competency gets threatened, we start reaching for all our tools, our expertise, our history, what we know. Because we don't like that experience of not feeling competent. Um, so we start reaching for what will be the right answer. And we'll take a belief, or we'll take a tool, or we'll take history, and we'll shape that into a right answer. And what I'm suggesting here for a few moments, if we can, to just, that the opening, that the mystery is more like an opening. It's more like opening ourselves to not knowing as opposed to getting fixed on what we know. It's a capacity to bear witness to that which cannot be solved um, but can only be lived. Only be lived. So, all of our lives are, all of us encounter this kind of mystery all the time. And I'm not speaking here about mystifying. I'm speaking about mystery. When I go to the hardware store and I try to ask the guy in the hardware store about an electrical problem I'm having, he mystifies electricity. He says, well, you know, you might, you might get an electrician for that job, you know. Mm-hmm. When I'm asking, well, just, can I just change this switch? Well, I don't know, you know. That's mystifying. That's not what I'm talking about. Religions have been mystifying our experience for millennia. Mystery for me um, isn't so much about what I can measure, or for that matter, always understand. Um, And in fact, the more I live in contact with this mystery, it becomes less important to me what I can measure. And much more important to me what I can experience directly. This gets me in trouble sometimes when I'm writing foundation reports and I'm trying to get foundations to give us money and they're looking for measurables on what I'm doing. And I actually had a discussion with a big foundation about this not long ago and they came to me and they said, well, we want to give you money, but what are the measurables? What's going to happen with these 25 students that you train? And I said, I don't know. And they said, you want us to give you money for that? I said, absolutely. I said, because there are certain things that you have to give money for to get things started. And then later, you can measure their results. But if you don't get them started, you'll never be able to measure them. Yeah? So help us get this started. And they did. They actually gave me $25,000. That was fantastic, I thought. Hmm. Um, the mystery that I'm speaking about, first of all, is a kind of recognition of our life as reality 
as this kind of unfolding, continuously unfolding process that will never come to an end. And so whenever I start grasping for the end result, of course we can get that in, in the particulars of things, but when I start fig- getting to the... When I'm driven by, how am I going to get this all figured out? I know I'm on the wrong track. That's not to suggest that we can't have a sense of curiosity or discovery or wonder. And that, in fact, is really helpful to to an understanding of mystery. But um, wanting it to be wrapped up in a bow is the antithesis of mystery. Um, so for me mystery has a lot to do with stepping out from behind my well protected belief systems my um, opinions my um, the false security of either or I'll call it that way the false security of either or Um, there was a great uh, Christian scholar Anthony DiMelo and he said this, he said, as soon as you look at the world through an ideology, you're finished. Reality doesn't fit into any ideology. Life is beyond that. Life only makes sense when you perceive it as a mystery, and that makes no sense at all to the conceptualizing mind. It's a great, great quote. Einstein said something similar. He said, the beauty of it is that we have to content ourselves with the recognition of the miracle or we could say mystery or we could say the paradox beyond which there is simply no legitimate way out. This is Einstein. So for me, living in mystery is all about living with in harmony, we could say, or in contact with this continuous unfolding. And so when I, I know that to be so on the macro level, can I allow that to be so on the micro level? So even in the act of service, can I let this be so? Yesterday morning, I went to see a man who's dying. And he's a very bright guy. Many, many more years of Buddhist practice than me. And he's asking me to help him be around his dying time. And I was in such a foul mood. I'd had such a terrible fight with my partner the night before. And it looked like we were going to split up. And it was just awful, you know. And I thought, what have I possibly got to offer this guy in the morning? And I got to his bed at 8 o'clock in the morning. He was just waking up and he was groggy and his wife was trying to shake him up because Frank's here, you know. And, um, and I just saw his eyes opening slowly. And I, everything that I was going to do with him that day changed. And I thought, the only thing that's important here is to help, is for both of us to understand about how to be with transitions. And so I said, Michael, what do you do when you transition from sleep to wake? And he said, why is that important? I said, because you're going to be going through a really big one soon. You're going to be dying soon. He said, yeah, okay. I said, this is what I do. And I gave him a loving kindness practice. It's what I do in the morning. That's how I wake up. And so I just, he drifted out of sleep and I just kept doing this loving kindness practice you know, with him. You know, may you be happy. May you be free of suffering. May you be... Uh, have happiness and joy. I just kept doing this practice with him. And he said, oh, that was, afterwards he said, that was so refreshing. He said, to do that. I said, good. I said, when can you remember that kind of love in your life? He said, and he, without a flash, he said, my dog. 
said, your dog? He said, oh yeah. He said, it was the best therapist I ever had. <laughs> he said, he gave me this love without any inhibition, without any holding back. Always, always, he gave me this love. He said, I never saw him not give me this love. I said, wow. Now we were into an entirely different discussion now. Do you see? Entirely different discussion. Yeah. And while I'm talking to him, I'm realizing this is the only thing I need to remember in my life. I've got to go back to my partner and do nothing but love her, actually. So it was beautiful. It was extraordinary. And I had, it was completely different than what we had agreed we would do and what I was coming planning to do. One Buddhist teacher said, if you learn to let go into uncertainty, to trust that our basic nature and that of the world are not different, then the fact that things are not solid or fixed becomes a liberating opportunity rather than a threat. You mean to say that again? It's a really good quote, isn't it? This is really about our alignment with something larger than ourselves that also includes ourselves. If we learn to let go into uncertainty, in other words, or to, I would just say embrace uncertainty, to trust that our nature and the nature of the world are not fundamentally different, then the fact that things are not solid and fixed becomes a liberating opportunity rather than a threat. I am not I, but that I, boy, that's threatened by this constant change. But when I'm not just oriented from that place, then it's a liberating opportunity, and then I'm really curious. Then I think we are free to savor what life offers us, uh, to taste the texture uh, of each moment fully, um, whether that moment is one of sadness or joy. Um, it's not that we're just bearing witness to this mystery. It's not just that, oh, isn't life mysterious? Isn't that fun to watch? It's an understanding that I am this mystery. I am not I. I'm this one. We are much vaster than the small self we have taken ourselves to be. When we see our capacity to think cognitively, for example or to understand only through measurement. Um, when we see these as the only dimensions of mind, we're selling the mind incredibly short. I love my mind. I love that it has the ability to analyze, to conceptualize, to imagine. I love all these capacities of mind. But I have to recognize that the mind is not just about measurement and cognitive, or my capacity to form concepts, but to imagine, to be intuitive. All of these are capacities of mind as well. How can you know, and all of us have had this experience, how can we know things that haven't happened yet? Don't you sometimes know who's calling on the phone before it rings? Don't you know that? Everybody knows. Everybody has that experience. Yeah. Years ago, I was leading a retreat for uh, men and women with AIDS. This was early on in the epidemic. And I had, oh, about 30 people at Esalen Institute on the ocean. And we were doing some work on forgiveness practice. 
And the work we were doing was a kind of gestalt exercise where you would write down the thing that you just, as if you were writing to the other person that you wanted to have a relationship of forgiveness in. And you would write down all the things that you just couldn't believe they would have done that it hurt you. And then you put the pencil down and pick it up again and write as if you were the other person. And this is how we would go. This is how we would practice kind of exercising the arms of compassion, we could say. And that we did some extraordinary work on this forgiveness for the better part of a day. And this retreat was about a seven-day program. And then um, everybody went home. But at the end of this exercise in forgiveness, this one guy came to me and he said, my father has totally abandoned me. You know, his father was a kind of Jesse Helms character from North Carolina. He, as soon as he found out his son was gay, he alienated him. He cut him out of his life. And then when he had AIDS, he, you know, he didn't even acknowledge him. He wouldn't come and see him. And so he was doing this work with his dad. And he said, this is, he said, I've written this letter to him, but I'm not going to send it. I have no hope that this will ever get resolved. And I said, okay, don't send it. But there might be some value in just having done this right. Let's see. So we went, the retreat is over. He calls me up the day after the retreat and he says, Frank, you won't imagine what's happened. Now his father and he hadn't been in contact for 10 years. He never sent his letter, but when he got home, there was a letter in his mailbox, guess who, from the dad. And it only had a few words in the letter. It said, son, please forgive me. I didn't know what I was doing. It was the whole letter. He's since died, this guy. He and his father made an extraordinary reconciliation, actually. What is, in the, what is it in us that knows sometimes that we have a capacity to heal even when medicine and other science tells us we can't? Rachel Remen had a, this beautiful story that she tells about... A, um, she runs a group for doctors. She did for years. And she said that the price of admission to this group was a story. Rachel's a great storyteller and loves to collect stories. So every doctor would have to come and each week they would tell a story. And this one guy came in, he's a cardiologist. And he said that when he was younger, his father had very, very severe Alzheimer's and also had had a stroke and hadn't spoken in 10 years. When he was older, 17, 18 years old, he and his brother would look after his father when his mother went out to do chores. So this one day, they're watching the football game on TV, the mom's out doing chores, and suddenly he sees his father slump in the chair and then slide out of the chair down onto the floor. And he sees him turning blue, his lips are turning blue, he's turning gray, his respirations are almost gone. And he says, yells to his brother, call 911. And then something incredible happened. The father spoke. And he said, no, don't call 911. Call your mother. Tell her everything is okay. And then he died. They had a, uh, an autopsy. And the coroner told him that the brain was so riddled with Alzheimer's that there was no possible way that his father could ever have said these words. Couldn't happen. This cardiologist said that this question, who spoke, who spoke, has guided his medical practice for 30 years. He said he's never found an answer to the question. He's never found any kind of scientific data that would support the situation. 
he believed the coronet, and yet he also understood this happened. Yeah. Who spoke? In Zen practice, we have a practice of koan practice. Um, these are these kind of confounding questions that Zen teachers ask their students, you know. Um, and in the training that I do, this year-long training that I lead, uh, f- we had to figure out how would we graduate people from this training. And we didn't know quite how we would do it. Would we test them? Would we give them a multiple choice test, you know? You're now able to spiritually care for the dying. How would we do it? And so basically what we said is we would put them on what we call the, the one seat. In other words, where the teacher sits. And so every student goes and takes the teacher's seat. And then the student selects a um, fellow student to ask them a question. And also we select a faculty member to ask them a question. So there are two questions asked of the students. The student doesn't know what the question will be. And the, the intention of the ceremony, of the ritual, is to evoke the truth from the student. Even to evoke, to evoke the deepest truth from the student. And so the question is not meant to be an easy question, and it's not meant to be the most difficult Zen question either. It's really to try and evoke the truth. And so we go through this with 25 students, and it takes a long time, it takes several hours. And one time I was working with a guy, a beautiful guy, 73 years old, a chaplain from back east. And it was my turn to ask him a question, so I... Uh, I knew that during the retreat, he'd had this experience during his meditation retreat, which we do. We do a 10-day meditation retreat. And he got up one morning and he was tying his shoe. And in tying his shoe, this one morning, he began to feel a great appreciation for the ordinariness of life. He just, you know how that happens sometimes? How we just appreciate the way leaves fall or birds sing or you tie your shoe. So I remembered this. And when it came time to ask him a question, I said, Bill, what's the value of ordinariness? And he, you know, he, the answer, he had to find the truth. And so he kind of looked through himself and he said, well, when I'm ordinary, I can be completely who I am. It was a good answer, I thought. But I didn't think it was the truth yet. I thought there was another, more truth to be. So I said to him, Bill, show me ordinariness. Now that's a hard question. How do you do that? How would you do that? Show me ordinariness. And then you watch this guy go inside. And it was like he was touching every part of his body and soul and heart with his attention. You could just see him sweep through his body. And as he did this, as he touched every part of himself, he just began to cry. And he cried in gratitude for his capacity, for the abundance of his life, for the ordinariness, actually, of his life, and for the simple pleasure of being able to make contact with who he was. And he just cried. And I bowed to him, and I thought I had really gotten a good answer from him. Truthful answer. So in Zen, the koan is a dilemma. It's a question we could say a mystery, that the rational, objective mind can't solve. 
What's the sound of one hand clapping? I actually know the answer to this. I do. I can tell you. Rabbi Alan Luke told me. Rabbi Alan Luke teaches in our course. He said, I know the sound of one hand clapping. Like this. <laughs> but, so a koan is really about this kind of, you know, this, this, this question that challenges the rational mind. And it's meant to take us beyond our strategic thinking. It's meant um, to shift, actually, the student's way of orienting their life. Not just to the question, but their whole life. Um, so, oftentimes in Zen practice, a student will struggle with the question for a long time. A teacher will give a student a question, and the student will struggle with it and just read about it, you know, and read what the masters say. And then they'll go to senior students and say, did you ever get this going, and what did they say? And, well, how did you answer, and what would you say in such a situation? Yeah? And, you know, they go crazy, you know. And oftentimes they get, like, very self-pitying, and like, oh my God, I'm never going to get this question, and why did I even ask him for a koan in the first place? And all this kind of stuff goes on. Until eventually, what happens is the student sort of surrenders this habitual way of thinking about the situation. And something else starts to open. So the resolution of the koan comes in a kind of trust that the answer will come in time. The understanding comes through a kind of inner stillness. We could say a retreat, or a word I like to use a lot, a kind of pregnancy, actually. Pregnancy. And this baby will come, and this answer will come. And when the question and the seeker get very, very close, told there's no difference between the two of them, then the answer becomes apparent. In fact, it becomes so apparent, you wonder, why didn't I think of this in the first place? This makes such sense. This makes terrific sense to me. This was so obvious. How could I have missed that? You know? After you're pregnant, you become a parent. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, in fact, it becomes so clear that you wonder that it might have been even difficult to imagine to think about it in any other way. And I think this is actually what happens to us as our awareness and our identification or our orientation toward our awareness begins to emerge. We begin to wonder, how could I have seen it any other way, actually? And already, so that we don't make this some highfalutin thing, you know, awareness is out there and you've got to be, it's only an enlightenment experience. All of us have this in some way. All of us have acquired a certain level of wisdom in our lives where we now understand things in a way that we couldn't possibly have understood them before. As a result, partly of our accumulated experience, but also because we have a different orientation to those questions. Yeah. Oh, boy, I have lots of favorite cons. Uh, um, Well, um, I'm hesitating. And the reason I'm hesitating is that traditionally when you give a koan, you give it in ritual. You give it in ceremony. So it's not just a playful, if a tree falls in the woods, does anybody, and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? You know, instead of that, 
which is the kind of cliche of koans. Um, there's a beautiful koan about, well, there's a story. I can tell you the story. Uh, there's a master and a teacher, and the master, di- a student and a master, and the master dies. And the student goes to the funeral of the master with his student. And they go to the coffin of the master and the student, who's now the teacher, knocks on the coffin and says, alive or dead? Excuse me, I'm saying that wrong. The student asks the teacher, alive or dead? And the master says, I won't say. And the student says, if you don't tell me, I'm going to punch you in the nose. And the master says, I won't say. And so on the way home, the student beats up the master, actually, and then leaves in embarrassment and shame that he's beaten up his master. Until finally he gets the word and he comes back, you know, he practices and practices for 35 years and all these things. And then he comes back, actually, when his master dies. And now he's got a student. And his student knocks on the coffin and says, alive or dead. And now he says, I won't say. I won't say. This is a beautiful story that leads us to a koan. It leads us to a question. What would be the value of the master saying this? So that's that's a kind of story. It's not a koan. It's a kind of story about a koan. And so we could understand that in a million different ways, actually. Such a story. But if we reach too quickly for the answer, we'll probably sell it short. Buddhism has a favorite teaching, which is a kind of koan, and it says, if you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. If you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. It's a great question. It's a great teaching. And it's pointing us in the direction of this subject, isn't it? If you die before you die, then when you die, you will not die. We needn't wait until the time of our death to understand this. Um, um, I think that we can kind of discover this in our lives now. First of all, to recognize where do we actually, I don't want to talk about notes anymore, where do we actually, where have we actually experienced our contact with mystery in this life? When have we actually known it? And when we experienced mystery, what did it feel like? What was the experience like? Yeah. So, I'd actually like to stop talking and have you start talking with each other. So I wonder if we could just do this really in a really simple way. We could just find a partner for a very brief exercise. And what I'd like you to do, and you could just reflect for a second even as I'm talking, think about a moment in which something happened or you understood something we could say something that you know for sure but you cannot explain what's an experience where you have a contact with something you know for sure but you cannot explain 
And what I'd like you to do is just think about that for a second, reflect on that for a moment. And then take just maybe three or four minutes with each other to just relay that story to the other person. What was an experience in which you knew something for sure, but you couldn't explain it? Now, I have a couple of other reflections for you. What happened just before that experience, in other words, what was the quality of your mind or heart just before that experience? Then you're going to relay, you're going to tell about what the experience was, and then did it change? Did it change the quality of your mind in any way after the experience? Okay? So, um, the example I gave, for example, of the guy who's got a letter from his father is something I cannot explain. I can't explain that. I know for sure it happened. It was real. Show me the letter. I believe there was a kind of connection between his father and him in the writing, in his writing, his earlier writing, but I can't explain this really. But I know for sure it happened. And this experience of mystery for me. Or the one in which the scenario in which I described Rachel in Rachel's story about this young doctor. So all of us I think have some experience like that. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as those. But all of us have some experience of this. And so I think if you just be quiet for a second, you'll find one in your mind. In fact, yes, I think you'll find one. I'm not going to worry about that. And so if you don't have one right away, don't worry. Your partner will have one. And as he or she is telling you theirs, yours will come. And if you can't come up with one, okay, don't worry about it. You won't, won't sweat it too much. But let's just see what happens. If you, have, if you just relate to each other. So just find a partner, take three or four minutes each, just briefly give the highlights of an experience that something happened that you know for sure but you can't quite explain. Okay? See what happens. Oh, I, I actually want to give you... Um, no, just do that. Just do that.
haven't switched, give the other person a chance to talk. Okay. I'm sorry, I may have interrupted some of you in the, before you could finish your story. I apologize for that. I'm going to try and keep us on time tonight. Um, I'm not doing this, by the way, to increase the California woo-woo quotient, you know? Woo, kind of mystery, cool, you know? I'm doing this because... Um, I actually think that uh, one of the things that mystery, the experience of mystery does for us, or contact with mystery does, is it actually opens us to a much more expansive sense of who we are, uh, beyond our rational understanding of ourselves. And that I want people to know that this is actually quite accessible and ordinary, in a certain way. That it's not the uh, domain of uh, spiritual adepts. Um, that all of us have access to this, in a way. So. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to know, did you, were you able to find an experience like this? Most of you. Yeah? Everybody could do it. Great. Good. Uh, does anybody want to give a, just a really brief synopsis, the highlights, the headlines of your, of your story? Just to give us, if anybody has an example of one? Yeah, please. We should do ours. Okay, go ahead. Uh, okay. 
trees. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, this uh, could get California woo now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it started. Okay, go ahead. I'm only teasing. It's okay. Uh huh. Wow. <laughs> Comment on these. I just want to hear a couple. Anybody else want to? Yeah. Years ago, my father-in-law had been in the hospital to have surgery on his aorta, and he was uh, staging a uneventful recovery, as far as we knew. Everything was fine. My children, who were small at the time, and I were going to a birthday party in the East Bay, and so we were driving from our house. And as we drove past UC Medical Center where he was, something suddenly made me jam on the brakes work the car, climb up the hill, park in a no-parking zone, tell the kids, wait, I'll be right back. And I ran up to his room to find a man with a look of absolute horror on his face because his stitches had ruptured and he was bleeding internally. And as I sat there watching this, all of a sudden, this whole team of doctors came in and said, get out of here, we're rushing him down to the operating room. Okay, example. When I, I do this with groups, I hear all kinds of things. I mean, it's amazing. Anybody else? Yeah, please. You know, it's like koans. You know, they, the, all these things have the most, it's their meaning to us that's most important. What we discover about ourselves in, in these kinds of experiences. So I, I, this is, I'm going to open to the whole group here. I'm really curious, what were the characteristics of this experience of mystery? In other words, what happened for you in relationship to the mystery? Does anybody want to say that? Yeah. From my life forever, nothing Oh, that. <laughs> well, I've been in a retreat for six and a half. Uh-huh. Six days or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. There's 1,500 people in the retreat. You know, and you're in Santa Barbara. And uh, I was sitting in a riser, right across the room on the stage. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful retreat. It was silent. And um, that morning, he started to feel his breath for something that started from two months ago. And as he was talking, I have no idea what he was saying at the moment. 
So when this experience was happening for you, Phyllis, what can you describe any any of the characteristics that happened for you? For example, some people will uh, describe the sense of mystery as being characterized by a quality of timelessness for some people, but I don't know what it was for you. I'm curious, what would have been the characteristics of this? Well, it was great awe and wonder. A sense of awe and wonder, you uh-huh. No distance. No. No external. No. Beautiful. Alright, anybody else? I'm really curious about the qualities now that you might have experienced in relation to one of these experiences of mystery. You don't have to tell the story, but what were the qualities? She said no distance. Jennifer, yeah. Um, Almost like the lights were brighter. The lights were brighter. And the spirit kind of Uh huh. Uh-huh. An enhanced clarity of some way. Cla- uh-huh. Beautiful. Okay. Do you, do you want to say something, Kitty? Yeah, I guess you would ask about how it changed. Yes. Yes. Um, um, what did you learn from it? That's another way to say it. So I mean, this is the, a lot of the this is the effect of a lot of this research that was done on non-local healings. You know, prayer for people at a distance, prayer for people who are unknown to us, for example. I, I'm not so interested in trying to support any of this scientifically. I'm more interested in what's the experience for us. What's the actual state like for us when we're in contact? I'm not trying to justify any of these things. Yes. Uh huh. Uh huh. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes these can just be experiences of intuition. Like you know, intuition is a complex of experiences. You know, from his it includes history, the unconscious, lots of things. And so sometimes that's what it is. But um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of feed the fire a little bit. I mean, I, for me, when I have these experiences. There's a sense of lack of boundary. You know, I can be with somebody and I don't have a sense of boundaries between us. Um, there's a kind of familiarity in the situation. Even though it's really strange, it's like something I feel like I've never had before, it feels strangely familiar for me. Something as if I, there's something I have known before, but even though it seems really odd in the moment. What these are, are um, tangible contact with with our quality of awareness. 
our capacity of awareness, which is not local, which is embracing, which is everything is formed out of this awareness. Everything is formed out of presence. Everything is formed out of our awareness. But we don't usually relate to it that way. We relate to it as, you're over there, I'm over here. But in these experiences, sometimes it takes us temporarily beyond those, that, those normal definitions, those normal ways that we see the world. Yeah? Good. Wonderful. What are they? You have just a pleasurable experience when you come in contact with him. And, you know, this may feel like a sense of mystery to you. I don't know if it is or not, but it feels like a sense of mystery to you. Yeah. Oh. I, um, oftentimes, people will describe some experience. If you, if you work, to pe- work with people around this, they'll describe some sense of mystery. And this happens, by the way, in working with people who are dying all the time. And one of the questions I often use with people who are coming to the end of their life is, I ask them about the same kind of question I just asked you. And inevitably, they, usually somebody's got some contact with this experience. And, I, and evoking that contact is useful because it helps them to um, see themselves as more than who they had imagined themselves to be up until that point. Yeah? yeah. Ah, so its quality is love, or that's the thing that's most evident to you, and it, there's a kind of intelligence in it. Well, how do you understand the intelligence? How do you, how does, how do you experience that? Wakefulness. Uh-huh. So there's a kind of alertness, wakefulness, a kind of knowing, direct knowing, in this way. Beautiful. I mean, you know, we, we can just look at the great mysteries, you know, like I was mentioning a moment ago about death, but birth is another place that obviously this comes up a lot. Most birthing mothers will tell you some story about their, their, their birthing their children that has a kind of sense of feeling connected to something larger than... Okay. So the obvious parallel I'm trying to drive is suppose our service came from this place or at least came from the recognition that this place exists. I'm, not, I'm speaking about it as if it were something separate from us. It's not. But in other words, what would happen if our service was arising out of or being an expression of this dimension of our being rather than just I'm the, poor, I'm the fortunate one and he's the poor unfortunate one? How might it change the way in which service occurs? For me, this has been an endless inquiry to really see where is my service emerging from? What's the structure or what's the point of orientation that my service is emerging from? And it's been an incredibly valuable inquiry to do that. And it isn't about condemnation. It's not be, oh, it should be there and it's here. When I've been willing to have contact with where it's from, the moment I begin to notice, even if it's coming from some self-centered place, I begin to make contact with that which is noticing. And it starts to change the way in which the service occurs. When we come back to your challenges in the very beginning, we were talking about the difference between 
trying to get rid of suffering and the um, tendency to be the capacity to be with suffering yeah so the moment I'm with even my self-centeredness I begin to notice something else is here something else is here that's first just in a sense of expanded mindfulness but then we begin to orient to this place and we realize oh this is awareness expressing itself through service it's entirely different the way in which service occurs yeah there's a there's a quality of constancy about it a certain availability maybe this is part of the intelligence that you're speaking about as a feeling like um, I have what I need to do this I have access to what I need to do this beautiful place so this is the big ticket item in service yeah I'm looking at Karen she works at KQED don't they have a big board at KQED when they do the auctions this is the big board oh some, they used to see I'm black I haven't had a TV for some years so I don't know <laughs> um, it, it's underlying everything else that we've been talking about though for weeks this is the ground found, this is where all of that all those other actions emerge from the capacity to be compassionately present for others I, how am I going to set down my roles unless I have confidence in something else yeah. and when I begin to orient or identify with my awareness I have unbelievable confidence because I'm not working from some limited structure that got created for a particular purpose and now I'm trying to use it for another purpose. Uh, my intention becomes very clear. So this is the underlying ground for everything else that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. So I'm looking at our time and realizing we've come to an end again. I can't believe we keep... These are too big a topics to tackle in, in, a, in a couple of hours. But... Um, I, I want to say thank you. I really appreciated having this kind of dialogue with you over the last four weeks, and I really appreciate you coming back. That was really great. Um, uh, you know, I, I would have been here, sat here by myself, but it's really nice to do it with you. you know? um, and you know, I hope that in some of this, there's been some some kernel of something that was useful for you um, in, this, in these four weeks of exploration. Um, so thank you for doing this. It gives me hope when I'm with groups like this. Um, you know, I see the whole world is running in the other direction sometimes. And, you know, you've chosen to come here and quite consciously and, and look at this and see, well, how can I, how, what can I learn about service and how can I be of service in the world? How can my life be an expression of that service? You know? So thank you for that. That, that, that inspires me. Um, I also want to thank uh, the San Francisco Insight community for putting this on and particularly my dear friend Eugene Cash, who's the teacher here, and those of you who don't know this community, every Sunday night at 7 o'clock, there's a big audience of people who come here um, to sit meditation together. And there's always instruction and a good talk. Sometimes there's a good talk. It depends. You know, I can't promise that all the time. Um, but anyway, uh, come anyway. On Sunday nights, it's free. And it doesn't, uh, it's a great way to be with other people who are trying to uh, look in the way that I think a lot of you are. I'm sorry? On Wednesdays, that's right. Is Pam leading that? Pam's leading that. Pam Weiss is leading that on Wednesdays as well. So I apologize for running out of time. I hope there was something useful in the evening. I'll stick around for a little bit if you have questions that you didn't get to get answered. 
and Donna would love to have your contributions. She's over there in the basket. Actually, um, we can't make time stop, but we can be not so limited by it. And this is something you'll see, or I've seen a lot at the end of life. People's notions of time, the construct of time, actually often falls away. And they don't live bounded by that anymore. And night and day become indistinguishable. So, yes. And no. Okay, yes. One of the ways we can bring back time is our intention here at San Francisco Insight to make these evenings available on the web at our website. There'll be a little delay before that can actually come to fruition. But it probably in the last, in the next three or four weeks, we check back at the San Francisco Insight website you'll be able to download these talks in oh. some version. Yeah, they won't be so edited and stuff, but you'll, you'll be convinced. Um, thank you. And uh, I hope it has been a little bit of an opportunity to exchange with each other about other ways in which people are of service to each other. And it's a great resource here. So maybe if you want to take a few minutes before you all leave, just check in with somebody and say, how do you do service? We might be a great resource. I'll let that happen Thank you. Oh, good, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.